So I, I was thinking about this question, like, what are the most beautiful things that you've ever seen? And I know I'm supposed to, like, insert my wife there, right? Like, true story. I didn't know who she was, and she visited the church. I was on staff, and so our church secretary happened in the, in the foyer with me, and I was like, hey, do you know who that is? Um, long story short, I won't tell you how we actually met, and I won't tell you that Katie said she was going to marry me before she met me. I won't tell you that story, but you can ask her about it sometime. But I was thinking about how the most beautiful things we have seen, how they impact us, how we think about them, how we wonder, we think of beauty in different ways. I, I was thinking this week, as many of us from here went to a baseball game, I was thinking how, how I love going to ballparks. Um, I used to really love baseball. I kind of like baseball at this point, but, but man, I love going to a stadium and seeing a field that is well manicured, great grass perfect lines. Like, I worked at a, a semi-pro ballpark in high school and then early in college, and so I love seeing when baseball fields are really well taken care of. Like, that gets me excited. I mean, it's a weird thing. I'm like, oh, this, look, look, see, they did a really good job. I mean, I noticed that stuff, and I care. I was thinking about how one of my favorite things to do is when someone visits here for the first time, I will take them down Beach Street, down by Pre Marquette, and there's something about when you come around that curve... If you haven't done it, like, I love coming around that curve, that image of all of a sudden there's the lake and the beach, and it looks like the Pacific Ocean, right? It's a beautiful scene. I was thinking about the, some of the waterfalls Katie and I saw on our honeymoon. I was thinking about what are the, the beautiful things in life. I visited a college in Point Loma, California, outside San Diego, and um, coolest campus in the country. They actually have the number one baseball field in college baseball. It literally sits overlooking the Pacific Ocean. If you hit it far enough, it'll hit the waves, right? It's pretty cool. It, that's a cool thing to see. I was thinking about how if you visit golf courses, I love going to golf courses that have like no houses because it's just cool to be in nature and it's just secluded. And, and one of the coolest pictures in Michigan, if you ever go there, you don't have to even play golf. It's just a cool scene. Go to Arcadia Bluffs Golf Course, and just but, but walk through their clubhouse and go out the back door and you just look and you can see water for as far as you can see in the rolling hills. Super cool view. Or maybe you've been to Sleeping Bear Dunes, or, you know, we can start naming all kinds of places you've been, and whatever you find beautiful, right, you're going to mention something. And so I I have this question this week that I've been thinking about, and it's a question that that comes back to our text today, but what what if beauty could save the world? What if beauty could save the world? And here's what I mean. Um, Sometimes there are things that are beautiful beyond Um, just words, or we find them in literature, there's forms of beauty, and so there's a a famous phrase, best line in literature, like one of the best lines ever. If you you Google best lines in literature, this will be in the top five on almost all of them. Here's the line. You probably heard it. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. From Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities. Right? Well, here's the reality. I think today's text from Colossians 1 is one of the most beautiful poems you'll ever find. In fact, it's maybe one of the best poems in all of Scripture. And I would argue that what makes it so beautiful is not just the words, but the message behind these particular words that Paul writes in Colossians 1, beginning with verse 15. Now, Paul's been writing. He's writing to the church in Colossae. He's probably never been to this church. He just happened to be the one who 
led the person who started the church to know Jesus. And so he's referencing there's some things they're believing. They're kind of, kind of out there a little bit. And he's trying to reel them back in and say, hey, let me remind you of who God is and the person of Jesus, how you're called to be his church and what that actually looks like. And so Paul writes these words in Colossians 1, beginning with verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I love this passage of Scripture, and I was thinking about how verse 15 is so powerful, because here is what Paul is saying. If you missed it, I'm going to give you one line to summarize verse 15 this way. Jesus is the perfect manifestation of God. All throughout the Scriptures, they point to the wisdom of God and what Paul is trying to get across is this. Jesus is this wisdom in flesh. He is God's wisdom among us. The God is fully seen. The invisible God is fully seen in Jesus. It mentions he's the firstborn of all creation. Not to say that, that like we think of all, well, no, it's the, all honor is his. I love this quote. The sun is the beginning of creation and the end of creation and the power who holds creation together, the creator, the sustainer, and the final goal of the world. And the object of Jesus' coming was reconciliation. People to God, people to people, and all creation. Jesus came to reconcile, to make right, to enter into our lives in such a way to redeem and to restore and make new. I love the second quote from William Barclay. He says this, The cross is the proof that there are no links to which the love of God will refuse to go in order to win human hearts. I think those words, those few verses that we just read are some of the most beautiful words you'll find all of scripture. I think they're beautiful because of the message they share and the way that he writes them. So what, what can we learn from this kind of poem? N.T. Wright gives us three things that are somewhat helpful. One, one is looking at Jesus, we discover who God is. Right? There are all kinds of bad views about who God is, right? Here we hear people say all kinds of stuff about God and they attribute to God. And often, we can't really use Scripture to justify them. Or they'll twist things from Scripture and go, well, here's who God is. You want to know who God is? He's Jesus. If we can't say it about Jesus, we probably can't say it about God. Let me phrase it. We can't say it about God if we can't say it about Jesus. 
Number two, Jesus holds together the old world and the new. Creation and new creation. I love that picture. Number three, Jesus is the blueprint for the genuine humanness which is on offer through the gospel. In other words, when we read the scriptures and we see who Jesus is, the invitation is for you and I to enter into a life in the same way that he lived it. The life of Jesus is the one you and I are invited to embody and to know and to become like. So I love these three things. And so here's what I love about this particular passage. Here's what Paul says. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In him, all things were created. He holds all things together. Jesus reconciles all things to himself. So Paul's saying in these five verses. Right, so I was trying to think how, how we could help in illustration. One, one commentator kind of used this illustration. I think it's kind of helpful. So think about if you've ever been to like a really big mall or an amusement park and you have those big maps that have like you're here and all these spots. And so you look at the map and it's overwhelming. Or maybe you've been to like the Mall of America or Disney World or someplace. I don't know. And, and you go and you're like, I need to just find, like, I just want a pair of shoes or I just want to get to that ride or just whatever it is you want. And you look at this map and it's huge and you have no idea where to go next. You're not even sure where you are, right? So the picture is the big map. And you're going, okay, so what's the point? What Paul does next, he says, okay, well, these next few verses are this idea that, you know, they did that little red thing that says you are here with an arrow and then you figure out where you're going next. What he's saying is, okay, Here's where you are. Here's the big, beautiful image. Because then we go, oh, those are great words, but what in the world do they mean? Paul goes, I get my audience. They're probably going, I don't care. What next? And so here's what then Paul goes to write. He says this. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven in which I, Paul, have become a servant. Verse 21 begins with this idea that we've been separated from God. And I love the way Paul writes this because I think it's not often how we speak. It's not often how we respond, how we think. What Paul says is this. It's not because of what God has done that you are separated from God. It's because of what you and I have done. Paul doesn't say you are enemies to God because of who God is, but because of your behavior, because of what you have done, you've decided to be enemies to God. God doesn't say you're his enemy. In fact, what we find throughout this text and throughout the scriptures, is God desires to be in right relationship with us, to reconcile, to make right, not to be on opposite sides with. And so Jesus' aim is reconciliation, to make right, to help us enter into right relationship with God. And so the aim of reconciliation is holiness, that we would be made holy by the work of Jesus. It would be so changed, so transformed that who we used to be, right, when we look back before we had encountered him, who we used to be is no longer who we are. But when we look forward, we go, man, I know the kind of person I used to be. And so what Paul is saying to the church in Colossae is this. 
You guys know who you used to be, but what might happen if you moved into who God desperately desires for you to be? So Paul wants them to know this message. And so if we were to step out of this text for a second, just kind of step back and look at the letter as a whole, we begin to recognize that Paul is addressing a particular issue that plagued the early church and honestly probably still plagues us today. This issue is called Gnosticism. It begins with the G, G-N, silent G, Gnosticism, right? And it's had a radical impact on how people saw God. Here's what I mean. The belief of Gnosticism was that God was only spiritual. And so he was disconnected from anything bodily because our bodies were bad and God was good. So spirit was good, body was bad. And so it's about head knowledge only, right? Just our brains. And so that kind of theology would exclude those who are not the smartest. So if you weren't the intellectual elite, you weren't welcome, right? The good news is God came for those who are very handy and very smart and those who are not. He came for both. If we're not careful, we'll begin to buy into that belief and we'll begin to teach things that are Gnostic in our day, like our bodies are bad. Like we don't have to take care of them, like they don't matter, like we shouldn't, like the truth is we should probably eat better and exercise. Those are things because our body is the temple of God. But if we begin to live into the implication of Gnosticism, we can do whatever we want if it feels good. Because it's not about what my body does, it's about my spirit or my mind. And so I can disconnect right, from my behavior, and how I live is not indicative of what my spirit is. So I can be connected to God who is spirit and do what I want with my body. And so this, this was what the early church countered so desperately. Because the early church was known for a radically new sexual ethic. They reoriented the way they understood that in the world. In fact, there are five things. A guy named Larry Hurtado wrote a book. The book was called Destroyer of the Gods. Why? It's a history book of the early church. What's his point? Christianity came in and literally destroyed the Roman Empire. Changed the perspective. And rather than this pantheon of gods, talked about a god. And there were five unique things of the early church that were really radically revolutionized the world. They radically revolutionized Rome. And if we're honest, if we were to embrace them today, I think they would radically revolutionize the world in which we live. But they are countercultural. Even some of them are countercultural to us. <clears throat> and here are the five things that Dr. Hurtado talks about. One, the church was multiracial and multiethnic with a high value for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Number two, the church was spread across socioeconomic lines as well, and there was a high value for caring for the poor. Those with extra were expected to share with those with less. Number three, it was staunch in its active resistance to infanticide and abortion. Number four, it was resolute in its vision of marriage and sexuality as between one man and one woman for life. Number five, it was nonviolent, both on a personal level and a political level. These five things all address the body. Because these actions and these activities cannot be seen apart from the body. But if we can separate some of these things out, then we don't have to embrace them as true, right? I, I read that list, and some of us are probably like, I like two or three of those. I don't really like all five. But those were the five things that were radical in the early church that revolutionized the world. And so they speak to the value of the body. Why? Because Jesus did. Over and over 
over again. And so Paul is challenging the Gnostic view in his day, and the truth is, we probably have to be careful and challenge it in our day as well. What we do matters. How we use or abuse our own bodies or the bodies of others matters. Because they're all created in the image of God. Right, I love this kind of idea. These few verses are a reminder that not everyone is a thinker. We don't have the same gifts or privileges, but everyone can know Christ and His love. The more we come to know Jesus, the more we come to know who God is, right? So we talk about this phrase often here, and and unapologetically so, right? Maybe you've noticed if you try to read the Bible, it's kind of hard to understand. It's a big book. I I was meeting with someone just this morning. We were talking about a particular book, verse in the book of Hebrews, trying to understand it in light of the whole Bible. And so so I just remind them, hey, like there's something we do that understands Scripture I think is incredibly helpful. We read all of Scripture in light of Jesus. The whole thing, in light of Jesus. Well, how do I know who Jesus is? Well, I can live in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because as Christians, we value the Bible, we think it's important, we think it's vital, but Jesus is who we follow. And so we understand all of it in light of who he is. Again, what does Paul write? Verse 15, Jesus is the manifestation of God. You know who God is? Look at Jesus. And so I was thinking, what do we do? The first few sections have been about what God does in us through Jesus. But then then what Paul does next is he says, here's what the reality is. From the beauty of God's love and the impact of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, it leads us to a different kind of life. When we embrace the message and the meaning of what Jesus has done, when we begin to know the depth of God's love and his mercy, then we go, what am I going to do with that? And that's what Paul says next. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among you, the Gentiles, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Out of the beauty of what God has done through Jesus. Out of the reality that God invites all people in, in response to God's great love for you and I and the whole world, Paul has only one response to serve the church. Paul's one response to all that, to the beauty of those words, the message of Jesus, is this, that I'm going to give my life to serving Christ's church. What's the message he shares in this? That Jesus came for all people to reconcile us to God, to reconcile the whole world. And Paul says, hey, I'll even suffer for the beauty of this message. I'll buy into Christ's afflictions and I'll embrace them as my own. And so I think what Paul would even say is this, is I'd even suffer for the beauty of the message of Jesus. That's why at the end of the day, I think beauty really will save the world. And so here's what we'd say to this, right? Paul moves from just the message to a life of meaning. 
If it just stays this head thing or this heart thing and it doesn't impact how we live, then it probably hasn't really done its work. And so what Paul's trying to say is this. If you and I will embrace this message as true, it will add meaning to our lives. If you and I want to live lives that matter, if we want our life to count for more, if we want to live with a purpose, then know the message that Paul shares in just these few verses. Embrace them as true in your life. Live a life of meaning and purpose and don't let them just be things that you know here, but let them be things that you live out there. And if you and I will buy into that, then we'll begin to answer this question that Paul asked us. Paul says he is a servant of Christ's church. The question for you and I is this. Are you and I? Are we servants of Christ's church? Are we willing to embrace his message and his life? As our own. Are we willing to embrace the message that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? In him all things were created. He holds all things together. That Jesus reconciles all things to himself. In Jesus we know who God is. The one who comes to help us reorient the world. The church is to be the living embodiment of God's kingdom here on earth. So radically other, so countercultural, that it doesn't look like anything else. It is unique. The church is to be the beauty that saves the world. The church is the living embodiment of Jesus, it is the body of Christ. Here's where it gets a little more messy. It's manifested in local communities like this one. It's seen in groups of people like you and I. It is not perfect. It is full of broken people who are hopefully coming to know the one who reconciles not just us to God, but us to one another and the world to himself. It is full of sinners and saints is a place of confession and healing and hope. You and I are to be the embodiment of Jesus. You and I are the embodiment of Jesus. He wants to reconcile the world to himself, and he wants to do it through the church. It is messy, but it is beautiful. We could tell story after story after story about brokenness experienced in the life of the church. But we can also tell story after story after story of the beauty that is seen in the church. The local church is the messy and the beautiful. What might happen if you and I said to Jesus, okay, I'm all in. I want to serve your church. Hey, notice I'm not like, hey, Connection Point Church. Notice I'm not adding that in there, right? I think we, we, it manifests in local communities, right? I'm serious about that. But I'm not telling you it's got to be only this church, but you and I are called to serve his church. And the church is not defined by any four walls. It is who we are. It is his people. What might happen if you and I believed and embraced the message that we can live a life of meaning? What might happen if we lived a life of meaning serving his church? 
what might happen if we were his church. If he said, okay, I want to be his church. I want to live for him. I believe this message that Paul writes about, the one who can reconcile all things, in him all things were created, things that are visible and invisible. He's the firstborn of all creation, and he holds all things together. What if today you and I said to God, I, I need that. I want that. I want to live for that. What if you and I begin to say to God, hey, I, I really want to be made whole. I want to be reconciled to you and to one another. I want to live in this way. What if you and I were to believe this, that Jesus wants you and I to say a deeper yes to him than we've ever said before? And as I said, a deeper yes. I'm assuming for many of you, you've already decided to say yes. Maybe today you haven't, and you and something in you is stirring that you're like, God, I'm in. I, I want to follow you. I want to come to know this one who you say is your son, Jesus, who gave his life so that you and I don't have to be separated from God's love. We have to live as enemies of who God is, the one who is love incarnate, seen in the person of Jesus. But maybe today you need to say a deeper yes. Maybe today you're carrying shame about your past. Maybe today you're feeling guilt It's just staying with you. It's eating at you. Maybe this message is for you today. That there is no shame or guilt in God's kingdom. He's the one who reconciles and redeems and makes right. The aim of reconciliation is holiness. So what what if Jesus wants to make you and I holy? What if he wants his church to become less sinner and more saint? What if that's the work he wants to do in you and I today? And what if this really is true, that Jesus wants to save the world, and it starts by his work in us? And so today, I don't know where you are. I don't know what's going on in your spiritual life. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't, I don't know if there's something that's just eating at you that you've just never said a deeper yes to God in a way that you say, God, I... I don't want to hold on to this any longer, this shame, this guilt, this past. This is eating at me, and no longer can I let it define me, but I want to serve your church. I want to be a servant of Christ's church. I want to live as a person so radically defined by the message of Jesus that says, I'm all in. And the way I've been living, I'm not going to live any longer. I want to come to know the one who helps me see with honest eyes my own life. Is laid bare and says, God, will you... Will you help me to look at myself honestly? To be healed? To be made whole? And will you do that in me so that then I can be the kind of person who goes into your world and helps redeem and reconcile what is broken in the world around me? But I know I don't have much to give unless you do this work first in me. We talked last week, we'll continue to talk for the next several weeks about what it looks like for us to be Christ's church. What it looks like for us to be the kind of people who create more and more space, not just in this room, but in our hearts and our lives, for more people to come to know the message of Jesus that wants to reconcile, to make right all wrongs, all hearts, all pasts. And so today, what I believe to be true is this. What Paul is trying to get us to understand is unless we allow God to do that work in us, then he can't really use us to be servants of his church. But if, if we'll say yes to a message and a life of meaning, if we'll allow him to change and shape us, then he really will. He really will transform who we are. 
They really will recreate us into the image of Jesus, the one who holds all things together, the one who is reconciling the world together. He is inviting you and I to let our past and our shame and our guilt to be just that, our past, but not our present and not our future. And he's going to say to you and I, will you serve my church? Will you be my people? Will you embody the message of my son? So this morning, as I pray and as we sing, the question you and I are left with is this. Will you say a deeper yes to God? Will you say a deeper yes to the love of Christ seen in the cross? Will you say a deeper yes to the God who says to you and I, I want to reconcile you and I want to use you to be my people who reconcile the world. And we be a part of a church that is countercultural, that embrace things as true, that go against probably the fabric of our world because we'll come to know the one who is setting all things right. We pray with me. Father, we ask you this morning as we pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who say a more and more yes to you, that we would find it that more and more we are defined by your love and your grace and your mercy. That you would help us to set aside the things that have held us back, that our past, our shame, our guilt. That we might come to know the one who literally was the destroyer of the gods of an empire. And sometimes it's easier for us to look back than to look inward. So, Father, will you do the work in us today so that moving forward we become more and more your unique people? May we become the people who are more and more defined by your love and mercy. May we look more and more like your son, Jesus. May we recognize that Jesus is the manifestation of God. And may we recognize that your scriptures are clear. You call us to look like Jesus. May we confess the ways in which we fall short. May we be open to your Spirit's works that we look more and more like you. And so, Father, as Paul wrote a warning to the church in Colossae about embracing the right message, may we do the same. May your scriptures be a warning to us to embrace your love and mercy and your message. May it shape the meaning of our life. I pray all these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.